Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Ezekiel. We will step away from Daniel. Still get a little Daniel. Step away from Daniel for the day. We'll be in Ezekiel chapter 24, verses 15 through 27. And as you make your way there, some fun facts about the prophet. He was both a prophet and a priest. He was called to his prophetic ministry in about 593 B.C. at the age of 30, the same age that priests would begin their priestly duty in the ministry. He was taken captive several years before that, around 597 B.C. His ministry would take place entirely in the land of Babylon and span some two decades. And he has some really healthy bread that you can get at the grocery store, too. <laughs> well, thankfully, that's not cooked the way that his was, but we'll see that in a minute. Well, I've titled today's message, The Death of the Darling. Allow me to read our text today and then pray once again before we start. And the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Son of man, behold, I am about to take from you the desire of your eyes with a blow. But you shall not mourn, and you shall not weep, and your tears shall not come. Groan silently, make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your headdress and put your shoes on your feet, and do not cover your mustache, and do not eat the bread of men. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and in the evening my wife died. And in the morning I did as I was commanded. And the people said to me, Will you not tell us what these things that you are doing mean for us? Then I said to them, The word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Say to the house of Israel, Thus says Lord Yahweh, Behold, I am about to profane my sanctuary, the pride of your strength, the desire of your eyes, and the delight of your soul. And your sons and your daughters whom you have left behind will fall by the sword, and you will do as I have done. You will not cover your mustache, and you will not eat the bread of men, and your headdresses will be on your heads." And your shoes will be on your feet. You will not mourn. You will not weep. But you will rot away in your iniquities. And you will groan to one another. Thus, Ezekiel will be a wondrous sign to you. According to all that he has done, you will do. When it comes, then you will know that I am Lord Yahweh. Now as for you, son of man, will it not be on the day when I take from them their strong defense, the joy of their beauty, the desire of their eyes, and what lifts up their soul? their sons and their daughters, that on that day he who escapes will come to you with a report for your ears. And on that day your mouth will be open to him who escaped and you will speak and be mute no longer. Thus you will be a wondrous sign to them and they will know that I am Yahweh. Let's pray. Lord, thank you once again for your word. It reveals you to us so that we can know you and love you and worship you and obey you, God. May you reveal yourself through your word by the power of the Holy Spirit. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive your word. And may we, with gratitude, surrender our lives to you today with joy and thanksgiving. Lord, we thank you. We ask that you bless our time in your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Jesus said to the Jews in his day in John five thirty nine. he says, You search the scriptures... Because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these which testify or bear witness to me. Now, I don't know, maybe you remember those stereogram posters. They were all the rage back in the late 90s, early 2000s, I think. But what they were was just a poster. 
And at first glance, it looked like it was just a random assortment of images and shapes that had no real rhyme or reason to them. But if you were able to focus in just right, you would see a 3D image popping out at you. Now, the way that you saw that image was through what is known as parallel viewing. And that's just a specific way of focusing your eyes so that you can see it. All my friends were completely unable to see these images and these posters, no matter how hard they tried. But I had a hack. And this was it. You would just go up, you'd put your nose right to the poster, right? Focus intently and slowly pull away, and boom, voila, it it would pop out every single time. So easy you couldn't miss it, so easily visible. So naturally, I would be that guy wherever I would see them in a dentist's office or at a mall. I would walk up and put my face to the wall. And I'm sure it was quite a sight to see, but I didn't care because there I was in all my brilliance, that's a hard word to say, seeing what other people couldn't see. I saw what I was supposed to see. When I think about the Jews of Jesus' day, you see, they got their noses in the book. They put their nose in Scripture, but they missed the big picture. They missed the theme of Scripture. They didn't see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And that which was supposed to direct their hearts towards God in Christ failed to do so because they were unbelieving. But nevertheless, they found a false sense of security in the fact that they possessed and studied the Scriptures. Well, in our text today, their ancient Jewish predecessors, uh, they fell victim to the same weakness. The Jews of the 6th and 7th century B.C., they found a false hope as well, but it wasn't in the Scriptures. Rather, for them, it was in the temple of God. In our text today, we're going to see that in the face of Israel's unfaithfulness, Yahweh is going to reveal Himself as their covenant God so that they and us might learn to hope entirely in Him. Our passage is going to fall before us today in three sections. First, in verses 15 through 19, we're going to see the sign of coming judgment. Next, in verses 20 through 24, we're going to see the significance of that sign. And lastly, verses 25 through 27, we are going to see a survivor who signals the end. Let's look first at the coming, that sign of coming judgment. And note first, verse 15, it says, The word of Yahweh came to me, saying... Now, that's a familiar formula for prophetic utterances. The fact that Ezekiel came to him is what distinguished him as a prophet... And in his ministry, there was this emphasis upon him as being a sign. In his ministry, he utilized visions, prophecies, parables, signs, and symbols, all to proclaim and dramatize the message of God. And in so doing, he would suffer hardship as a direct result of his obedience to God. His ministry included things like being mute. In chapter 3, God muted his tongue. He was only able to speak and say what God wanted him to. He couldn't speak freely. Now, that might be good for some people, but the prophet nevertheless was under God's control. Another instance, he had to lay on his side for 390 days. And when that was up, he'd go and lay on the other side for another 40 days. The entire time, he's eating the same bread which was cooked over animal excrement. Uh, Yeah, he would shave his head, he'd cut his hair, and burn some, scatter some, hack it to the other third with uh, the sword. This is all indicating what God was going to do to the nation. Well, today in our text, we're going to see that the worst was yet to come for him. Uh, his, uh, the fact that this sign, it finds its source in God. Now, that's a vital truth that we really need to recognize right off the bat. 
If we're going to make sense of what's going to befall the prophet, we need to realize this. We need to recognize that this is something coming directly from the hand of God. That way we can understand it, or we might struggle to assign value to the tragedy. Moving on, we see God's sovereignty in the sign. Verse 16, the Lord says, Son of man, behold, I am about to take from you the desire of your eyes with a blow. Now, so many questions can pop into our mind at this point, like, can he? Can, can God do this? I mean, can he take the life of a seemingly innocent woman and still be good? Does this impugn his character in any way? Because it looks like God's about to take the prophet's wife as an object lesson, to make a point. Well, no doubt this text um, presents many problems for, or problems for many people. And some commentators even seem to struggle with it in their attempts to resolve it. It's as though they're trying to get God off the hook, as though they have to make excuses for him in this text. Their explanations suggest that, you know, God really didn't kill the prophet's wife. Rather, he just so happened to see into the future and note that she was about to die. Unfortunate. But being the opportunist that he is, he took it and used it to his advantage. See, for them, death equals bad. God can't be bad, so therefore God can't be responsible for death. But when we look at the, cl- the text a little closer, the text, it tells us a different story. First of all, God says, I am about to take from you the desire of your eyes. God accepts full responsibility. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't spin it in any way to take responsibility off his shoulders. Rather, he says, her death will be my doing. And we can add to that the Hebrew word which is used in this passage, which I will not attempt to pronounce. I'll save myself that embarrassment. But the word that's translated as a blow, it's translated in various other places as a plague or even a slaughter. It's used some two dozen times in the Old Testament. And almost every single time that it's used, God is the acting agent. It's used of the plagues that the Lord brought on Egypt in the Exodus event. It's used of the death of the spies who brought the bad report to the land when Israel was supposed to enter in, in Numbers 14. And again, in Numbers 25, it's used of the plague that Yahweh sent upon Israel after they sacrificed to Baal of Peor. It's been defined by some as a plague brought on specifically by God. Now, we don't know what the blow looked like, how it materialized in real life. We don't know just how she died, but what we can be sure of is that this was a judgment from God, and it was about to fall on the prophet's wife. As we continue to try to make sense of this, try to understand this, we need to understand, we need to see Ezekiel big picture. We need to understand the the message of his entire book to, to really make sense of what's going on here. For the past 20 chapters, Ezekiel has been prophesying against the southern kingdom. After his calling at the start of the book, he takes aim at everything. He calls out to the people, the land, the hills, the ravines, and now he's focusing on the temple. In this sign that we're studying, this is a pivotal location in the book. This, is the, this marks the last of his utterances against the southern kingdom in this section. After this, the following verses, he's going to focus in on the pagan nations which surround Israel, and he'll start to pronounce judgment upon them. But in pronouncing this final judgment upon the southern kingdom, this is the one that would strike furthest at the heart. This one would hit the hardest. 
This would be the crescendo of all of his utterances. And as a prophet, he would have to bear this sign just as equally hard for it to serve as a lesson. Here, Ezekiel's wife would be essentially sacrificed on the altar of his prophetic vocation. So far in Ezekiel, God has been seen as completely sovereign. God is uh, the one that Ezekiel saw in his initial vision who was seated above the earth. He's above all other thrones, all other powers, authorities, dominions, and rulers. There's no one above him. There's no one that God needs to go to and get permission to act as he pleases. God can do as he wants. He is sovereign. We also see that in Ezekiel 18, the Lord told him that all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son. And the soul that sins will die. We can add to that the soul of the wife is his as well. And even last week, Pastor Joe covered Nebuchadnezzar's declaration in which he said of God in chapter 4 of Daniel. He said, He does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And there is no one that can strike against his hand or say to him, what have you done? And if our anthropology is correct, we know that the prophet's wife was a sinner, just like all of us. The sentence of death was upon her. The Lord could take her life as he pleased. That's true of all life. Job 14 tells us that man's days are determined. The numbers of his months are with God. And the Lord has set the boundaries so that he cannot pass them. When we think about death, we think about the death of the prophet's wife here. We consider death in general. Let me ask you, who do you want in charge of it? Who do you want behind it responsible for it? Do you want to say that it's just some random accident, some random incident with no purpose or reason behind it? Do we not want to say that God is in control or that God took a life? That's something we try to avoid. But you know what? We do say that, though, don't we? We say that. We say the Lord took them too early or God took her to heaven. See, we acknowledge, whether we admit it or not, that God is sovereign. He is the ultimate cause behind every death. And though he employs various other causations to bring about his will, it's ultimately his will being done. And so... When we think about that, we think about the death of Ezekiel's wife, and we see that God is very much so involved. Now, we don't know much about her. She's not mentioned anywhere else but here in the Bible. Uh, we know that Ezekiel was 30 years old when he was called to the, pro uh, the office of a prophet. He was deported some five years or so before that. It was likely they were married. She would have been deported with him. She probably had a really good character about her. It says that she was the desire of his eyes. She was a well-pleasing thing to him. She, this implies that they had a, a happy marriage. Now just imagine. Think about all the hardships that he felt and he faced in his ministry, the rejection of the people that he talked to. Imagine, I, I, I think that he often came home from a long day at the prophetic office, and there she was, loving him, supporting him, sticking with him, ministering to his knees. You, his knees. You absolutely bet that she was a delight to him. But here in our text, he is not only deprived of his wife, but of the, the ability to mourn for her. Verses 16 through 17, the Lord says, But you shall not mourn, and you shall not weep. 
and your tears shall not come. Groan silently, make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your headdress and put your shoes on your feet, and do not cover your mustache, and do not eat the bread of men. Here the Lord gives him nine instructions of how he's to go about the loss of his wife. Don't openly cry. Keep it all inside. Don't participate in the typical practices of the day for mourning process. These prohibitions, they defied nature. It's natural to cry and to weep over the loss of someone so dear to you, isn't it? They also defied custom. The word used in verse 17 when he says, make no mourning for the dead, it refers, it's a word that refers to the customary mourning rituals that they would perform. Now, he wouldn't be calling me up and saying, hey, Daniel, I, I need to prepare a memorial service for my wife. That's what I do here at the church. He wouldn't be offered that. The Lord would deny him of that. He also wouldn't be dressed in a manner that would indicate sorrow. In our culture, we recognize the wearing of all black. Someone is in sorrow, right? We have that in our culture. But for them, it was the removal of the turban, of the shoes, the covering of the face. He wouldn't do that. We see when Absalom betrayed David, David went up the ascent to the Mount of Olives with his head covered, barefooted, and weeping. The term used for headdress or turban, it's associated with the word meaning to be beautiful. So they would have... The, the turban, the headdress would have been uh, recognized with rejoicing and festivity. So the, the removal of it would have constituted a proper response by someone who's been bereaved. Rather, for Ezekiel, he would put on his Sunday's best. He also wouldn't be eating the bread of men. Now, those are the customary meals that uh, people would prepare for the mourner. There wouldn't be a meal train set up on his behalf. From the outside, Ezekiel would appear completely unfazed. And this would be shocking. The people would see this and think, what is going on? Why are you behaving so contrary to culture, to nature, to what you should be doing? Going on so far, we have seen that this, source, this, this sign finds its source in God. We also see that God sovereignly deprives him of both wife and the ability to mourn for her, But now notice the prophet's submission to God in this sign. Verse 18, he says, So I spoke to the people in the morning, and in the evening my wife died, and in the morning I did as I was commanded. Read that again. You see how simple, how straight to the point that is? How devoid of emotion even it is. He says, And in the uh, the evening my wife died, and in the morning I did as I commanded. I was commanded. You know, there's a... It's interesting, there's a commentator who uh, suggests that Ezekiel had a bit of rebelliousness in him, that he was rebellious to his prophetic office, and he points out verses throughout the book that he thinks indicate his refusal to obey. He thinks at times that the Lord had to coerce him into action. I'm unpersuaded by that argument, but I think about this text here, that's definitely not a conclusion you can come to here. It's so simple. My wife died, and I did what I was supposed to do. There's no questioning God here. There's no sign of delay in his actions. There's no indication that he complained. There's absolutely no reference made to any motive in his heart that is not in complete submission to the will of God. And as we've already seen, Ezekiel knew his God. He knew who he was. 
He knew that he was worthy of all obedience, no matter what he ordained to come to pass. We've already seen as well that he knew that God was sovereign. We see that in his attitude when he says, I did as I was commanded. He knew that he was a man under authority. One author was commenting on the office of a prophet, and he said this, The prophet belongs entirely to his God. His paramount task is to listen to and obey his God. In every respect, he has given himself up to his God and stands unreservedly at his disposal. Uh, That's good. I love that. That is really good. That last statement, he stands unreservedly at God's disposal. But let me suggest to you, that's not just true of prophets. That is true of all of God's people. Aren't we a people set apart for God's glory, for God's will, come what may? We stand unreservedly at the disposal of God. Lord, take my life. Let it be used for your glory. Do with me as you please. You are the sovereign Lord. Ezekiel knew that the only proper response was that which was found in Job 121. After he was bereaved, he said what? Yahweh gave and Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. You see, Ezekiel had a deep knowledge of the Lord. He knew that he was sovereign. He knew that all that he did was good. He knew that God was worthy, and therefore he obeyed. And I just want to take a minute to exhort you to pursue a similar knowledge of God as the prophet had, to seek to know the Lord in a manner that you too, no matter what comes into your life, you can respond properly. You can obey the Lord in any circumstance. In my job here at the church, one of my positions, I serve as the memorial coordinator. And I help uh, dear saints prepare services for loved ones. And on often many occasions, it's the loss of the love of their life, their spouse. And in the midst of what I know on the inside is deep, deep pain, what I see is an even greater joy coming through. And for many On a number of occasions, I've worked with families who have been at this church for and sitting under the ministry of our beloved pastors here and sitting under sound teaching for many years, more years than I've been alive. And they are so solid in their faith. They know God's word. They know God's heart. They know his will. And they are responding and obeying that biblical command to rejoice always, even when the circumstances are demanding that they do something else. It's funny because I'm actually supposed to offer counsel. And in many cases, I'm like, what am I going to say to you? I mean, you teach me. Help me understand God as deeply as you do. It's beautiful to see rejoicing and praising God in the midst of that. As a teacher of God's word, my desire is to stand up here, essentially to open the Bible, hold it open before you and say, behold your God. See him for who he is. Know him, love him, worship and obey him. Going back to our text. Verse 19, the people then seek an understanding of what's going on. Verse 19, the people said to him, will you not tell us what these things that you are doing mean for us? I mean, you got to love that response, right? Like they're just a little bit concerned with themselves. Ezekiel, I know your wife died, but talk about me. Tell me what's going on in my life. What's this mean for me? They didn't ask what do these things mean, but what do they mean for us? You see, they claim to acknowledge that in some way, his actions had implications for their lives. We know that Ezekiel was kind to be, called to be a sign to the people. 
the Lord would go on and tell him that this is what they say concerning your message. Come now, hear what the word which is, which comes from Yahweh. So they would say, when Ezekiel speaks, God speaks. But the Lord would go on to clarify for him that all you are to them is a lustful song sung by one with a beautiful voice and who plays an instrument well. You're just a performer. They hear your words, but they don't do them. The Lord would go on to say in chapter 33, when the destruction comes, then, then they're going to know. They're going to know that a prophet has been in their midst. You see, they played lip service to the fact that he spoke for Yahweh, but they were not about to listen to his message. They were not going to take heed to his warnings. But the day would come when they would recognize the significance of all that he said. Which brings us to our second point, the significance of the sign. Ezekiel begins by giving them the explanation. Verse 20 and 21. Then I said to them, the word of Yahweh came to me saying, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord. Stop there. This section begins with a threefold statement that it's the Lord speaking to them. Is there any question who's speaking to them at this point? No, absolutely not. It begins in verse 20. The word of Yahweh came to me. Then again in verse 21, the Lord implores, implores Ezekiel to say, say to the house of Israel. And then he goes and he says again uh, in verse 21, thus says Lord Yahweh. The people were not to harbor any doubts that this message came from the one who was authoritatively in control of what was about to happen. They should have given the greatest of care to this message. They failed to do so. The central message of what the sign that Ezekiel performed was, was destruction. The Lord was about to take from them that which they loved most. He's going to take from Israel that which was darling to them. He said in verse 21, I'm about to profane my sanctuary, the pride of your strength, the desire of your eyes, and the delight of your soul. And your sons and your daughters whom you left behind will fall by the sword. The temple was approximately 500 miles west of them at this point in Babylon. But yet the fact that it stood, the fact that it remained, represented for the inhabitants of Jerusalem as well as for the exiles a sense of security. As long as the temple was there, they were assured that all the covenant blessings would, be, would come to them that they would receive all the promise, all the protection, all the goodness from God. It served as something that they hung their faith upon. It was a bastion of the community's future hope. And it became to them, he says, the pride of your strength. The term pride of your strength, it signalized their reliance upon the temple, and it had in mind an impenetrable fortress. The phrase is used in Leviticus 26, where Yahweh warns the people, if you persist in rebellion to me, I am going to break down the pride of your strength. And here it represented the temple to the people. It was an inviolable security. He also says that it's the desire of your eyes. That's the same term that he used to describe the prophet's wife. As precious and as dear as she was to Ezekiel, so too was the temple to the people. He goes on and he says that it's the delight of your soul. Some have translated that as the longing of your soul or the object of your affection is the way the NIV puts it. 
You see, that term is characterized by an intense emotional attraction. The temple was something that they were passionate about. They were zealous for the temple, for their religion, but it was completely polluted. And because of that, the Lord is going to destroy it along with their sons and their daughters who were left behind. So when Ezekiel was taken captive, about 10,000 people were taken with him. They were, many of them, separated from their families. And their loved ones were left behind in Jerusalem. And the Lord says that those who remain in Jerusalem are going to fall to the sword. But the exiles would be able to do nothing about it. The prophet then goes on to clarify that his actions would be an example for them to imitate. Verses 22 and 23. And you will do as I have done. You will not cover your mustache. You will not, put, you will not eat bread of men, and your headdresses will be on your head, and your shoes will be on your feet. You will not mourn. You will not weep. But you will rot away in your iniquities, and you will groan to one another. Once the Lord had brought the destruction, they would behave just like he did. That shocking fashion of not mourning, of not seeming phased. They would behave in a similar manner, but that's not because of lack of grief on their part. No, rather, Jeremiah clarifies this for us. The Lord says in chapter 16, Do not enter the house of the funeral meal, or go to lament or to console them. For I have withdrawn my peace from this people, declares Yahweh, my loving kindness and compassion. Both great men and small will die in this land. They will not be buried, they will not be lamented, nor will anyone gash himself or shave his head for them. Men will not break bread in mourning for them to comfort anyone for the dead, nor give them a cup of comforting to drink for anyone's father or mother. The normal channels of community support would be cut off to them in the face of this utter destruction. Rather, they would rot away in their iniquities. And that was a promise that God was fulfilling, which was found in Leviticus 26, where the Lord warns them, if you persist in your rebellion, if you continue to go against my commands and, and break my covenant, then he says, those who remain will rot away in the iniquity in the lands of their, your enemies and also in the iniquities of their fathers, they will rot away with them. They had dealt treacherously with God and now his eye would not pity them. This is such a devastating sign, and what happened to them was utterly shocking. But when we think about this, we read our text here. What is their sin? What is the heart of it? I mean, it seems that they're just trusting in the temple. Is that really that bad? I mean, does it merit such great destruction? Now, that's where we need to have a big picture of Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel, the message found in Ezekiel. We need to have a holistic view of their sin. So I want to take a quick journey, a quick survey to see their sin as it's portrayed in the book of Ezekiel to help us understand the severity of what's going on here. He begins, uh, the Lord uh, has a, in the beginning of the book, he has a certain title for them that he uses for them throughout the book. He says in chapter 2, verse 3, Son of man, I am sending you to a rebellious house, people who have rebelled against me. Verse 5, they are a rebellious house. Verse 6, they are a rebellious house. Verse 7, they are a rebellious house. Are you picking up on a theme here? No? You need more convincing. Okay. <laughs> Chapter 3, verse 9, they are a rebellious house. Verse 26 and 27, and on and on and on. And even in chapter 24, it begins calling them a rebellious house. They wouldn't miss the message. They may have been God's people, but they were rebels. 
Their rebellion is seen in their defiling of the temple. Chapter 8, the Lord takes Ezekiel in a vision to the temple, and he shows him the entrance of the north gate. And when he's there, he sees an image of jealousy set up. And he says to them, you see their abominations. I'm going to show you worse. Then again, he takes them to the entrance of the court where he digs a hole through the wall. And once inside, he sees the 70 elders standing there burning detestable images. And he says again, you see these abominations? I'm going to show you worse. And then he takes them to the entrance of the gate where women were weeping over the God to Muz. And he says, I'm going to show you worse than this. And lastly, he takes him right up to the entrance of the temple between the porch and the altar. And there he says to him, he shows him 25 men with their backs turned, facing the east, worshiping the sun. Right in front of the entrance, right before you went to the holy place. I mean, talk about turning your back on God. Literally. They were worshiping a God, a false God, essentially in the face of Yahweh, with their backs turned to him. I mean, could their rebellion be pictured any better. When you think about the temple, I mean, this holy place, the further you progressed into it, the more restricted the access became, the more dangerous it became, essentially, because of the holiness of God. But as the Lord is taking him around to these various locations and right up to the door, it's as though, like, the closer they get to the holiest of holies, their sin are getting, their sin's getting worse and worse. But right before that they enter into the temple, Ezekiel has a vision, and he sees the glory of the Lord departing. You think about all this. They had forced the Lord from his temple. He says their sin is worse than the nations around them. They've rebelled against me worse than their, their neighbors. Really, to drive home this point even further, the Lord likens them to a harlot. He uses explicit language. I mean, so much so that I'm not going to repeat it here in good company. But it's very explicit language used in this book. It makes you, sh the shocks you. You think if I was to describe people, come into work and start describing people in the same manner, I think I would definitely get called into somebody's office. Like, what are you talking? He describes them in very shocking terms. He likens them to a harlot in chapter 16. He tells the story of how he saved them, but how they rebelled. He said, you were like a baby left to die, squirming in your blood. But I took you and I, I saved you. They grew up into a beautiful woman, a woman, and he entered into a covenant with them and he made them his. He washed them. He anointed them. He clothed them, gave her fine linen and shoes, adorned her with jewelry, gold and silver. But he says, they played the harlot because of their beauty. They took the clothes which he gave them and they made high places for idol worship for themselves. They took the jewelry which he gave. He calls it my gold and my silver and they made images to play the harlot with. They took his oil, his incense, his bread and offered it to strange gods. And worst of all, they took their sons and daughters and he says, whom you bore to me and you offered them to idols to be devoured. You slaughtered my children, making them pass through the fire." And you would think in light of all this, this, this graphic imagery that the Lord is employing, this language that, that Ezekiel's throwing at them, you would think they would see their sin and they would say, woe is us. We repent in dust and ashes. We are sinful. We have sinned against you. Have mercy upon us, God. But what is their response? Jeremiah gives us insight into that in chapter four, chapter seven, verse four. The Lord says this, do not trust in lying words, saying this is the temple of Yahweh, 
This is the temple of Yahweh. This is the temple of Yahweh. He goes on in verse 8, and he says, Behold, you are trusting in lying words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, kill, or commit adultery, swear while lying, burn incense to Baal, walk after other gods that you have not known, then come stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered. That's what's happening here in Ezekiel 24. That is the depths of their depravity. That is what they have taken their pagan idolatrous worship and they have tried to merge it with the holy worship of God and say, he's for it. He's blessing this. God is on our side. We have divine favor and the temple proves it. We can do as we please and we can corrupt the worship of a holy God. And God says, no, this place has to go. I'm not going to let it stand as a representation for you any longer. Going back to our text, verse 24, the Lord says that Ezekiel will be a wondrous sign to you as surely as the Lord had ended the life of the prophet's wife, the temple was going to come down. This section concludes by saying, when it comes, you will know that I am Yahweh. I am Lord Yahweh. That's that covenant name of God. That is uh, the God who he's revealing himself as their covenant Lord, and he is going to be faithful to that covenant. And in this case, he's going to be faithful to bring the covenant curses spelled out for disobedience. Moving on into our final section, verses 25 through 27, we see a survivor who signals the end. There's now this shift to a direct address from the Lord to the prophet. Ezekiel's done talking to the people. The Lord addresses him directly. He says in verse 25, says, uh, Now as for you, son of man, will it not be on the day when I take from them their strong defense, the joy of their beauty, the desire of their eyes, and what lifts up their soul, their sons and their daughters, that on that day he who escapes will come to you with a report for your ears. On that day your mouth will be opened to him who escaped, and you will speak and be mute no longer. Thus you will be a wondrous sign to them, and they will know that I am Yahweh. The Lord indicates that destruction was coming, and when the destruction came, there would be someone who comes to bring message to the Ezekiel, or to the, the exiles, to Ezekiel and those who are with him. Jerusalem fell in 586 BC. The trip 500, approximately 500 miles, they would have taken a different route, but it would have taken them approximately five to six months to get to Babylon. Verse, uh, that would put the, the, the survivor who comes, he probably would have reached Ezekiel around 585 BC. Verse 27, the Lord says that at the time that the prophet's mouth would be opened, when the survivor comes, you remember that he was mute he was made mute back in chapter 3. He could only speak what the Lord had permitted him. And he says that you will be a wondrous sign in all of this. I'm going to confirm my word through you, to you, to the people. They're going to know that a prophet has been in their midst. You see, they're 500 miles away. He's making these great claims. The temple's about to fall. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Your sons and your daughters are going to be killed. How do we know? How can we verify this? Those are great claims, but we're 500 miles away. But the Lord says that I'm going to send you a survivor, and he's going to vindicate you. He's going to vindicate your message. He's going to verify everything you said. 
and the people will know that you do indeed speak for me. We have that story. It's recorded in chapter 33. The messenger came just as was said. Ezekiel's mouth was open just like God said. And the destruction came upon the people just like God said. It was done. Their sin, their rebellion, it all culminated in the destruction of the city, of the temple, and of their children. Any hope that they held on to, any security that they clung to in the temple, it would have been dashed to pieces. And it was it. That was the end of that temple. But that's not the end of the story. There's still more to come. You see, when we think about the various themes that are found in the book of Ezekiel, the wrath of God is one of them. You, I would encourage you all, take 12 chapters a day. You could read it every four days. Read it again and again. Get really familiar with that book. It's amazing. You see certain themes popping up again and again and again. The wrath of God is one. The Lord says that my wrath is going to be poured out upon this people. But he says about it in chapter 5, he says, My anger will be spent. I will cause my wrath against them to rest. I will be appeased. And they will know that I, Yahweh, have spoken to them in my zeal when my wrath I have spent upon them. The people's sin caused it to come. The Lord poured it out upon them, and now it was satisfied. The wrath of God was at rest. The temple was destroyed. The object of the people's affection was gone. And the story that's recorded in chapter 33, where the survivor comes to Ezekiel, that, that incident, that chapter, that story indicates a shift in the book, a notable change in the tone of the book. Prior to that, the prophet's mouth was controlled by God. He could only speak what God would let him speak. And it was judgment. It was wrath. It was coming destruction. But when that destruction comes and it's poured out and it's satisfied and the message gets to Ezekiel, his mouth is open, the entire tone of the book changes from one of judgment to one of hope and restoration and promise. The end of Ezekiel, chapters 34 through 48, the Lord begins to spell out for the nation a promised future hope for the people. He begins to tell them the promises that await Israel in the future. And in chapter 37, go ahead and turn there now. We're going to end up closing there in chapter 37. Verses 24 through 28, the promises that are spelled out in those final chapters are nicely captured in this text. I'm going to walk through them quickly. He says in verse 24 of chapter 37, My servant David will be king over them, and they will have one shepherd, and they will walk in my judgments and keep my statutes and do them. They will inhabit the land that I, give to, that I gave to Jacob, my servant, which your fathers inhabited, and they will be inhabited. And their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever, and I will cut a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will give them the land and multiply them, and, they, and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place will also be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people, and the nations will know that I am Yahweh, who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. The promises that are captured here 
and are spelled out in the, re- the remaining chapters. They include that David will be king over Israel. That is speaking of none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised Davidic king. The, the Lord would be faithful to his promise to David, that he would have one that sits upon the throne forever. Also in verse 24, they will walk in my judgments and keep my statutes. In chapter 36, the Lord promised to cleanse them, to sprinkle water on them, cleanse them, give them a new heart, give them a new spirit, so that they would walk in his commandments and not, no longer be called a rebellious house. Also in verse 25, he says that they will inhabit the land. God would bring them back to the land from which they had been scattered. He would bring them from their captivity and they would dwell in the land again in safety and enjoy the bounty of it. And we know that after the captivity, some of the people did return to the land, but we don't see the fulfillment of these prophecies. We don't see the fulfillment of these promises. We know that they would still go on to reject their Messiah. They would reject their Davidic king. So we know that these promises are still for a future day. And that's why in verse 26, God says, well, they need a new covenant. They need a better covenant. And I'm going to make that covenant with them. It's a covenant of peace. It's a covenant that lasts forever. See, the Lord is determined to bless his people. The Lord is determined to give them uh, the promises of the covenant, his grace and his mercy to be poured upon them. And he would secure the blessings of that covenant in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. You see what they couldn't do for themselves. The blessings and the promises that they couldn't secure for themselves because of their rebellion and their sin, the Lord would do by sending his son. And that is true for all of God's people. He secures all the covenant blessings for us in his son. God's people never have found a sense of security in a building or a structure. It's always been in a son. To those who are in Christ, isn't he glorious? <laughs> Hasn't he become to you the desire of your eyes, the delight of your soul, the object of your affection, your strong fortress? He's glorious. There's still another promise back in chapter 37, verse 26. The Lord says that he will set his sanctuary in their midst and dwell with them forever. Ezekiel tells the people that this temple may have been raised, R-A-Z, to the ground. But there's coming a day when the Lord will raise up another temple. That Israel will once again worship their God in holiness. Offer to him true worship. And we know that that is the temple that's found in the millennial kingdom. That's still for a future day to come. We look forward to that. But for us, given the full revelation of Scripture, we can look even farther beyond what Ezekiel saw. We can look further into the future, into the eternal state, where the Apostle John gives us a glimpse of the new heavens and the new earth. And as he surveys the new Jerusalem, what's missing? The temple. Why? says this. Revelation 21, 22, And I saw no sanctuary in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its sanctuary. You see, in heaven there won't be a building facilitating the worship of God any longer. His glory will fill the whole world. It will no longer be concealed behind walls and curtains, but on display for all of God's people, for all of eternity, to worship and adore Him. You see, the temple, it should have directed their hearts towards him, but it didn't. And they 
developed a false sense of security in it. They evaluated their relationship with God on the fact that it still stood. Let us learn from this today. Brothers and sisters, let's guard our hearts from falling prey to a similar sin that any, there might be any external reality that we evaluate our relationship with God on. And let us set our hopes entirely in our covenant God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth found in here uh, in Ezekiel. And thank you for the fact that you love your people so much you won't permit us to have a false hope. That you are such a good God who is determined to bless us and to save us and to secure for us the covenant promises and blessings in your Son. And he is so glorious and he is so precious to us. And we worship you for your wonderful plan of salvation. May our lives reflect that truth on a daily basis. May we know you better and better every day. May we recognize that whatever you do is good and be fully obedient to you in, in whatever you ordain to come to pass. We thank you for this time. We give you our day. We give you this week. May you be glorified in and through us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.